Welcome to Her American Story, a podcast where first and second generation American women share their stories about growing up in the United States. I'm your host, Jazz Bean. To learn more about my guests, visit HerAmericanStory.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at HerAMStory. Feedback, would you like to be on the show? Send me an email, HerAmericanStory at gmail.com. I've got another great story for you today, so let's get started. Hi, and welcome to Her American Story. Today we have Dr. Sasha Retana with us. We're going to start off by having her tell us a little bit about herself. Hi, everyone. So my name is Sasha Retana. I am a gastroenterologist in southeastern Massachusetts. How much of my story would you like to know? (laughs) However much you'd like to share. Where are your parents from? When did you come to the United States? Or when did they come to the United States? And maybe start off there. Sure. My parents and I came to the United States at the beginning of the 90s, 1990, actually, during a large wave of immigration of Soviet Jews that came to America as refugees. It was just about right before the Soviet Union fell apart, when they loosened up some of the restrictions on letting Jewish people out and letting people travel in general, that so many Jews were able to obtain refugee status and come to America. So that's when we came here. I was 11. So my family and I were resettled in the Boston area, and that's kind of where I've stuck around since. So what was the transition like coming to the United States? So I talk about this in my book, which we're going to discuss a little bit at the end, but it was quite a process. It wasn't like you were granted permission and then you just take a flight over and you end up where you were supposed to end up. It was a long process. For some people, it took over a year. They had to leave Russia. They had to go to Vienna first, where they would be processed, apply for refugee ship. From there, they went to Italy for further processing. Sometimes they were refused. Some people were stranded in Italy without support for months and months until they were allowed to come to America. So by the time we got here, we'd already been through quite a lot. Also, you know, it was different for everybody because there were some people who were coming and they had sponsors here waiting for them and they were lucky to join a large community of other Soviet Russian Jewish refugees like in Boston, New York, Chicago, you know, pretty much every large city has a community. But some people who had no sponsors ended up in places where they were the only different family in town. Some people ended up in Iowa, Arizona, where maybe there weren't such strong Jewish communities at all and no other Russian people either, or I should say former Soviet Union people at all either. And those people I'm sure had it a lot harder. But by the time I got to Boston, it was, you know, April 1990, I started school, I had at least five other Russian kids at my school, they already had an English as a second language program going, they had Russian TAs to help us. So it was strangely welcoming. Doesn't mean it was easy. It was still quite a culture shock. But it was nice to be welcomed into a community. What was the most, I guess, difficult transition what was the most shocking or the most kind of the biggest hurdle to get through in the beginning months that you were in the, in the I mean, I was only 11. So my parents probably would tell you more about like real world worries, you know, money, language, where are we going to live? What are we going to do? Will our college degrees transfer? Where are we going to work? For me, it was more like, you know, I grew up very sheltered and where I was living, all the bad stuff that was going on in the Soviet Union. I mean, my parents did their very best to shelter me. And I grew up kind of knowing exactly 
who I was, where I was, where I belonged, and how my life was going to go, right? And then I got plucked out of that at age 11 and kind of brought here where I was completely outside of my frame of reference. So people would meet me and they didn't know what my background was. They didn't know what my parents' background was. They didn't know who we were. I didn't know how to define myself. And all of that happened, of course, you know, right as you're also entering adolescence. And so you've got all of those changes going on. And at the same time, the one thing that was supposed to stay stable, which is your environment, that's also changing. That was probably the hardest thing. Now, as far as the other Russian children, I guess, that you were introduced to when you started school, did you mostly spend time with them or were you able to pretty easily make friends with others um, in your class? No, it was definitely not easy. So I joined in sixth and seventh grade. I shouldn't say Russian because they, you know, we call ourselves Russians because Mother Russia, but it's actually FSU, former Soviet Union. I mean, there were people from Ukraine, Belarus, Uzbekistan, everywhere. I myself am from Russia. I'm from St. Petersburg, but there are people from all over the former Soviet Union there. So I don't, I say Russian because it's kind of shorthand, but it's really FSU. So I went to the Brookline Public Schools. There was a class of about maybe 50 people at my school. And out of those, maybe five or seven were Russians and more were arriving for a while. And yeah, we pretty much stuck to each other, if only because we were in ESL together. So, you know, we spoke no English. So they put us in ESL and we kind of hung out together. I have to say that I don't think I ever really made any American friends until like medical school, probably. (laughs) There were always Russians around and they always kind of congregate. But I think that's true of any any one group that's going to be a minority. Yeah, I could see that. Now, growing up, how was it, I guess, for your parents raising you? What kind of did you see as hurdles for them just from your own perspective as a child? I mean, for me, it's hard to say. I was an only child from my mom and my stepdad. For them, I think they, once they kind of figured out what they were going to do and how they were going to make a living, they wanted to make sure that I didn't get quote unquote lost because they, they see it. You know, immigrant parents are so busy trying to figure out how to survive, how to put food on the table, what to do, that they kind of lose track of their kid. The kid gets into the wrong crowd, gets into trouble, or they, they don't do what they're supposed to do. And this is what they were afraid of. So as soon as they were kind of on more steady ground, they started looking for things for me to do. And it's mentioned, it's, I think I talk about it in the book, or maybe I don't, but you start seeing Russian parents come together and form clubs, groups, theater, reading circles, things for their kids to do so that they're not A, lonely, B, bored, and C, losing their way. So I saw that my parents doing that a lot all through high school for me. That's wonderful. It's such a great way to be able to stay in touch with your culture. And that was their idea. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, did you love it as a youngster? Um, No, no. (laughs) I didn't love it because I really wanted to Americanize and I wanted to be American. But you know, you coming here at age 11, right, you're kind of in this odd position where you're not quite first generation, but then you're also not quite the immigrant generation either. You're kind of generation 0.5. And actually my medical school roommate, who was Korean, she was in the same boat and she actually wrote her college thesis on the generation 0.5, where you're kind of stuck between two worlds. So, you know, I'm not quite American enough for the Americans, but when I see the Russians, I am kind of like not quite Russian enough for them either. And so I hated my, I didn't sound that I hated it. I, I, I liked it, but my whole goal was I want, I want to be popular like the American kids, but it was never going to happen. <laughs> so 
That's so funny. And so then where did you end up going for college? Did you stick around kind of close to home or did you end yeah, up Yeah, I went somewhere? to Brandeis, which is in Waltham, which is about 15 to 20 minutes outside of Boston. It's a Jewish university. It's not a Jewish religious university, but it's a university started by Jews in the 1940s when there was a lot of anti-Semitism in America and they weren't getting accepted other places. So they wanted it to be like the Jewish Harvard but their philosophy is on acceptance. So when there was this huge wave of former Soviet Union immigrants that showed up here and then, you know, all the kids started growing up, Brandeis started offering them a lot of scholarship money to support the community. So when I got to Brandeis, there was even more Russians there than there was at my high school. (laughs) So I was always part of, in the same milieu, so to say. Yeah. Sounds like um, comforting. How did you feel? Did you feel like you really fit in with? with By that um, time, I loved it. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I felt like, fine, you know, I had a group. I got to Brandeis. We had a group. We had like a crew. We were always hanging out together. And that's kind of what I was always looking for that I didn't really find in, in high school. Mm-hmm. And what made you decide to become a doctor? That's a funny story. I never thought about becoming a doctor. Actually, I'm a humanitarian. My mom mm-hmm. and my, my biological dad were both philologists, like Russian mm-hmm. language and literature teachers. But I got, because of my SAT score, I somehow got placed into honors chemistry at Brandeis. And I got there. And then the whole class was full of these like pre-med gunners. And I thought, well, I can do that. And uh, my mom said, yeah, really? Are you sure? Because it's kind of a long road. And I think she said that to challenge me. I think she did that on purpose because I said, what, you don't think I can do it? I can do it. I'm going to do it. And so I stuck with it. And then, I don't know if you remember, this was what, like 1996? Do you remember the show ER? Definitely, yeah. So all of my crazy gunner pre-med roommates were watching ER every Thursday night. And so then I was like, I want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and if that seems like a really shallow reason to become pre-med, well, it got me where I am. So here we are. <laughs> I don't think you're alone. I'm, I'm sure it influenced quite a few people. <laughs> I mean, you know, if I started watching West Wing, yeah. this may have gone a completely different direction. Just depends on what you think is cool at the time, right? That's right. <laughs> That's so funny. Now tell me about the medical school experience. What was that like for you? So I wasn't like the bestest of students. I mean, I was a good student, but to get into medical school, you have to be absolutely exceptional. As you know, you have to have all these grades and all these extracurriculars and all of this and that. And like I said, I was never really a science person. Like honors chem was a disaster for me. It was so hard. (laughs) Organic chemistry. I mean, it was a weed out class. And a lot of the Gunner pre-med people that started, I think, dropped pre-med sophomore year because of organic chemistry. Somehow I stuck it out. I don't know how, but I was definitely nowhere near the exceptional level that the deans said they were looking for. But I really didn't really have a plan B. So I applied and I I went on a bunch of interviews and the medical school where I actually got in, the, the doctor who interviewed me was from Watertown, which is next to Waltham. And That's how we talked. Oh, you go to Brandeis. Oh, I grew up in Watertown. And then we talked about how Watertown and Waltham were next to each other and the Armenian community in Watertown. And we had a little bond. And then like three months later, I got an acceptance letter. And that was the only place I got in. And I really think that's why. So I think it was just like tremendous luck, which doesn't help my imposter syndrome, but there you go. So I ended up at 
it was called MCP Hahnemann in Philadelphia when I went. And then it was renamed Drexel College of Medicine by the time I graduated. The first time that I left the Boston area, the first time that as a Jewish person, I felt as a minority in this class of 250 people. And also the first time that there wasn't like an army of Russians. There was, I think, two or three other Russian people in my class. What was that like? It was different. I know I had to step outside my comfort zone. Although I have to say Philadelphia has an enormous Russian community, like, Mm -hmm. you know, former Soviet Union community, but they're in a whole other part of Philadelphia. So I was not living there. And I also have to say that my part of the reason why I applied to school in Philadelphia is because my biological dad lives there with his family, with his wife and two kids. And so I kind of felt like maybe I'd have a little backup home to go to if things got lonely. And that Mm -hmm. was very helpful. Yeah. What was it like kind of interacting outside of your comfort zone and, and making friends? I'm a shy person. I think leaving my frame of reference, as I say, at age 11, and then dealing with a lot of what felt to me like rejection when I got here made me kind of shy and worried about, do they like me? Am I annoying them? I think my biggest thing is like, I don't want to be annoying. So reaching out and making friends is always kind of really painful for me because I'm not really ever sure if they want me. So that part was hard. But you fall into a groove and I made friends with my roommates and your gross anatomy group becomes your, your BFFs, right? For the next four years. So my gross anatomy group was two other Russian girls and the guy from Cuba. So they called us the communist block and we went around together. So it was good in the end. And how'd you get into GI or what made you decide to, to pick that field? Well, I wanted to do hepatology because my grandmother had this rare liver disease called primary biliary cirrhosis. And I thought it was super interesting. And I wanted to do liver transplant. So, you know, I applied for gastro. I I decided I couldn't decide for a long time between critical care and gastroenterology. And then in the end, I decided I wanted to do that GI. And then when I got to GI fellowship, I realized how much of liver transplant work is just a little bit too close to playing. Like I I didn't feel comfortable making some of the ethical decisions that you end up making as a, as a liver, well, as a transplant doctor of any kind, but liver transplant in my case. So I ended up not pursuing that and I ended up just in GI. And now the book, I've known you via social media for a little while through the writing groups and things like that. So tell me how you got started with your blog and what made you decide well, to do that? So I always liked to write, even as a kid, I wrote stories And then so much of what we do as doctors is so regimented and dry and boring. And the way we write our notes, you know, are so exactly how they should be. The S, the O, the A, the P, right? 86-year-old woman here with blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, you can recite it. And sometimes you need a creative outlet. And so I wanted to do something with that. And I, I had so many stories I wanted to write down. Like our immigration story is so crazy. And if you get a bunch of people together that went through it, and you start sharing stories, you find that everybody's experience was very similar and they'll relate, but also just a little different and so interesting. And, you know, there's a lot of emigre literature from like the late 70s, early 80s. But I felt like at the time, there was really nobody from my generation that was speaking out. There has been a little bit more of that lately. But at the time, in like the 2000 teens, I felt like nobody was really writing. Nobody was really telling their story. And I, I said, I can do that. I can tell a story. It took me five years, but I finally got it down. So the funny thing is, speaking of social media, that I accidentally somehow 
became TikTok sort of famous in the last couple of weeks. And I don't even know if I want this. I've become the poop doc on TikTok. Really? <laughs> the craziest thing, I made one video about poop and it went completely viral. It now has a hundred, uh, no, um, 1.2 million views or something like that. Oh my goodness. And I'm still getting comments and questions on it. And so then I started making more content about poop. And I'm just like, this is not, I didn't necessarily want to be known as the poop doc on social media. (laughs) How can I parlay this success into like getting people to read my book that's not about poop? I don't even know. (laughs) Well, people that are generally interested in you after all, it starts out as like the interest in the topic. And then it becomes an interest in you. And then whatever you do, typically people will I'm going to have to figure this out. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Now tell me and, and the listeners when your book will be coming out. So I plan to have it available on August 31st, as soon as I get the cover straightened out. Um, Wonderful. The book is all ready to go. And I'm hoping to release it on August 31st. It'll be available wherever ebooks are sold and also a paperback copy. Wonderful. And where can folks read your blog? Is you a blogger? Yeah, it's at andwhynotshesaid.com. So it was a great blog. And then because I started writing the book, I stopped blogging for a while, but I'm now, you know, reviving it as I start to open up more about the book project and talk about other things. Wonderful. So and andwhynotshesaid.com. Great. And then where can folks find you on social media? I know you mentioned TikTok. So, and why not, exclamation point, is the Facebook page for the blog and myself. And then, and why not, she said on TikTok, (laughs) if you want to learn about poop. And then I think it's Sasha said, why not, on Twitter. But although I I don't tweet much. I comment a lot, but I don't tweet much. Yeah, it's like every social media platform has its own little... Rhythm. I don't know. It's very interesting. It's very idiosyncratic where you seem to find success because I've been on Twitter for five years and I don't get much engagement. And then along comes TikTok and it's like, welcome. Poop. It's what the, pe- the people want. <laughs> they want to know about people poop. want to know about poop and butts. It's amazing. The questions that I get and then I talk about it and then everybody says, nobody ever talks about this stuff. Thank you so much. And I'm like, every gastroenterologist talks about this stuff nonstop. Yeah. <laughs> You're no, like, this, this is, is literally wild. my job. This is what yeah, I talk this, about. This is wild to me. What do you mean? Though? What do you mean people don't talk about poop? That's all I talk about. <laughs> That's awesome. And if you could give advice to somebody in your shoes, if someone is immigrating now to the United States at the age of 11, what advice do you have for that young woman having gone through your experience? I would say don't despair. It's a long road. Anything is possible. Stick with it and you will find your niche. That's That's great. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I'm very excited about the book. The book is called Looking for the Enter Sign, and it is written under my full name, which is Alexandra Ratana. Oh, that's good to know. Thank you for mentioning that. And I'll make sure that's on the website as well. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I'll have the website updated and you know, really appreciate you taking your time to tell us about your book. Great, great to chat with you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Join me next time for another exciting episode. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at HerAMStory. I love feedback. Send me an email at HerAmericanStory at gmail.com. Music, courtesy of my husband, Justin Rensing.